Hello! Welcome to the Media Media Edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of what was a very busy week. I am Felix Hammond of Axios. I'm joined by Emily Peck of HuffPost. Hello. I'm joined by Anna Shamansky of Breaking Views. Hello. And because we love him so much, we have the best person coming back to join us, Ed Lee from the New York Times. The media, media, media reporter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Ed covers all things media at the Times and is here to talk to us about Spotify in the Plus segment, also about the New York Times itself. He's getting very navel-gazy in this particular issue. As media reporters are, are want to do. We're going to talk about Instagram. We're going to talk about YouTube. Lots of media content this week, but also, of course, Tesla content. Because... What's going on with Tesla? If you want to know whether to buy Tesla stock, you can do two things. You can either just Google, should I buy Tesla stock? Or you can listen to Slate Money. We will answer that question for you coming up on Slate Money. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So this is this is the segment where we talk about Google searches. Um, I have my Google up, and we have all tried this with various degrees of logged in and anonymous and what's it browsing for me. When I type, should I buy into Google, the first autofill is, should I buy Tesla stock? And then it's followed by, should I buy Apple stock and should I buy Bitcoin? So I get, I'll have to type as should, and I get, (laughs) should I buy Tesla stock? Wow. But then after I get uh, that, I get, should I stay or should I go lyrics? (laughs) (laughs) I I had, I typed should and I got, should I buy Tesla stock and should college athletes be paid? Which, yes. And And no. no. 
respectively. Ooh. Do buy Dev stock, and no, they shouldn't be paid. <laughs> so I, I also got, should I buy Tesla stock? And then I got, should I get bangs? And should I text him? And as I said, <laughs> the answer to all of those is no. Yeah, absolutely Hard no. no. That's easy. That's good. I think there's. I, I don't know what you thought against. Google bangs? tell people whether or not to get bangs. I know. I don't understand. What kind of advice? Google doesn't. I guess they know you well enough. They could just. They know Google knows you so yeah. well. It could just say, not for you, honey. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the answer to should I buy Tesla stock is obviously yes because it's what crazy like it's how to make lots of money right no yes, buy high you, sell low <laughs> you're contradicting yourself I mean everyone reads your newsletter and knows that you said what goes up really quickly must come down really quickly. I didn't say it must come down really probably quickly, will but I did say that if a stock can behave like that if it can melt up and basically double in value in no time in the way that Tesla did it is equally capable of melting down and having in value more. Which happened 24 hours after it went up. Right. I mean, so we had... Wait, we pa- had, pause and ex- okay. just explain so let's a have little. A, let's have a little know. brief history oh, of Tesla stock. Brilliant. Which, um, which, like, Tesla was worth $31 billion back in June, which is probably a reasonable amount of money for Tesla, if not a lot of money for Tesla. We, You know, it's a car company, and that's how much car companies are worth. And then suddenly in 2020, this stock has gone on an absolute tear and it went up and up and up. And then after going up, it went up and up and up. And then suddenly this week, it stopped going up and it started screaming up and it would go up like $10 billion a day, $17 billion a day, $20 billion a day. It hit a peak of like almost $1,000 a year. And then because it's just at that point, a gambling vehicle rather than an actual company. I think it's been a gambling vehicle for a long time, actually. So the other history around Tesla stock beyond it just being this sort of new company and worth more than GM and Ford, all these established uh, car makers that produce like millions of cars a year versus Tesla producing hundreds of thousands of year. There were a lot of short speculators against Tesla in addition to bulls. Short speculators are basically people who bet that the stock will go down. Right. And I think that had an effect this week when it surged. Okay, Some, so but... so like I have done a bunch of work oh, on this. Okay, I'm like, let's get into this. It'll be fun. Um, I think that Anna and I are in agreement on this one. So I looked at the Tesla chart because that's how much of a nerd I am. And I immediately said, this looks exactly the same as the chart of Volkswagen shares in 2008, because that's how much of a nerd I am. And <laughs> Those of us who remember Volkswagen in 2008 remember that it was the mother of all short squeezes. And it was it briefly became the most valuable company on the planet. And this was all to do with a bunch of financial engineering by Porsche, which bought up a bunch of like options, which gave it control of the overwhelming majority of Volkswagen shares. So what you had was you had 12% of the shares of Volkswagen were short, right? That short sellers had borrowed 12% of the ordinary shares of Volkswagen and then had to buy them back. And they expected and hoped that they would be able to buy them back at a lower price than they paid for them. Between them, Porsche and the state of Saxony in Germany owned 94% of Volkswagen shares. And they weren't selling. Wait, the state of Saxony? I didn't know that the state of Saxony could own. Okay, well, there you go. So there you go. So the state of Saxony owned 20% of Volkswagen, and they weren't about to sell. So these short sellers, you had basically 12% of Volkswagen was short, 
and only 6% of Volkswagen was available to buy. So all right. of the short sellers, when they when the press release went out saying we control this much of, of Volkswagen, they desperately tried to buy the stock in order to be able to cover their shorts. But of course, only half of them could get to the exits in time. And there was this insane short squeeze. And this is still to this day, 12 years later, being litigated in various courts and like Dan Loeb and a whole bunch of people lost a fortune. And it was great. It was so a that was a squeeze, see. though. You, that was a you, squeeze. That's a short squeeze. Though. That is a classic short yeah, squeeze. Yeah, often any time there's any type of short covering, people are like, it's a short squeeze. No, it's like, yeah, it has an effect, but it doesn't have that dramatic effect so, if there's not a supply-demand issue with the in stock. this case, in the so case of Tesla... Issue, sorry, because I, cause when you said Saxony, I just drifted off. <laughs> so with that, it was basically like they needed to buy the stock, but the other people weren't selling the stock. So it just kept there was getting no more, stock expensive to buy. And more expensive exactly. and more expensive. And then and they in general... Like bail out of the ship. Basically. In general, the way that a short squeeze works, you don't need that kind of artificial thing. But in general, the way that a short squeeze works is you borrow the stock um, and then... You sell it. The person who lent you the stock wants some kind of collateral because you're, you're entering into a loan agreement. And then if the value of the stock goes up, the person who lent you the stock enters what gives you what's known as a margin call. And then like you have to put up a bunch of money in order, if you want to keep on being short this stock. And then the more the stock goes up, the more money you need to keep on putting up the more you're losing basically right? until eventually you end up capitulating and end up buying the stock at a crazy high level and all of that buying pressure from the shorts keeps on pushing the price up and so there's this like dynamic where the more shorts there are the more buying pressure there is on the stock because the more shorts there are the more people who need to buy the stock that was not happening with tesla the tesla short interest right now is lower than it has been in years the amount of activity in the stock means that shorts can cover super easily without affecting the price because the amount of volume in Tesla is enormous. So buying pressure from shorts doesn't affect the price because literally we had one day this week where there was $60 billion of volume in one day in Tesla. And so no amount of short covering is going to really even be a drop in that bucket. So the the idea that the reason it was going up was because shorts were covering and buying the stock and that was sending the, the stock up just doesn't pass the smell test. Meaning it, yeah. it, even if that were the case, it wouldn't account for that much of a rise in what we it, saw. Like it could right. account for maybe like the price going up by a buck or two. So it doesn't happened? account for the price going up by $300. So what was it? It was just individual traders on Robinhood? Okay, so this is what it was. Do you want, do you want to know what it was? <laughs> yeah. I will tell you what it was. Everyone I'm, wants I'm to know. Everyone, here everyone <laughs> wants <laughs> to know. The answer is the stock went up and there wasn't a reason. <laughs> Come on. There no, always you know, that needs is to the be a best reason. answer, but it doesn't explain the phenomenon, of course. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it has how full much of zero this? Well, I mean, why has? Yeah, know, I want to hear. No, other. I'm just like looking at the the movement of Bitcoin over time. Like there, there is not a tremendous there. There, you off you can get into these speculative bubbles, and where there just simply is no good reason. And you can try to come up with a reason, and you can come up with all these theories, but they're all going to be somewhat false. The reality is that in theory, the stock price is supposed to represent something about the value of a company. And when you have something moving this dramatically, there is nothing possible that 
that happened that could have changed the market value of this company, the intrinsic value of that company, that dramatically. But even even technical factors, like you know, I, I remember getting to a big discussion with Luke Cower of Bloomberg about this. You know, he had this whole theory about people buying calls and delta hedging. No, and, that's whenever yeah. anybody starts telling you delta hedging, say <laughs> absolutely no, it's not. <laughs> but but the point the point is that we as human beings are absolutely desperate for narratives and causation. And we see something happen in the markets and we're like, there must be a reason. There must be a narrative. There must be a causal relationship here somewhere. And sometimes there just isn't. But isn't the... I, I agree with that. But in this particular case, like the velocity of trades, the velocity of the movement was such that you kind of feel like there had to have been something. I mean, isn't as simple as, I don't know, was it robot arbitrage? No, like, no, isn't that? no. no. <laughs> well, how do you know that though? How can you say that's a that's a no? Where is that coming from? No, because how do we know that? because what you're because okay, this is this is what I'm saying. Like I'm saying, this stock price is a random stochastic gambling vehicle thing, which is just behaving like a demented roller coaster, and there's no sort of causality there. And you're saying, wait, this is so crazy. There must be a reason. And what I want you to do is to examine that statement and to say, like, what reason do you have to believe that whenever there's crazy price activity, there's always a reason for it? Because the market is not as diverse as we think it is. In other words, there are only so many like a lot of retail investors, regular mom and pops. There aren't that many of them. It's mostly big funds and uh, whether it's it's hedge funds and or, you know, CalPERS, like retirement. funds. there's just there's like maybe a hundred big players that move the market in so many ways every single day, and it's not like hundreds of thousands of individual people okay, acting can, can I, independently. Can I and all of a sudden, throw in an interesting little wrinkle here? Sure, please. What is the biggest, largest, most solid pot of long-term stock market investing capital in the world, but certainly in America? The answer is S and P five hundred index funds. They just sit there. They buy the entire index. They don't do anything. Sometimes they'll repo it out. Sometimes they won't. Passive but index is what very, you're very right. not just, no, no, no. It's not just passive in terms of buying the the passive market, which is what they do, but passively buying the S and P five hundred. Right. Okay. And Anna is going to tell you what is the single biggest company that is not in the S and P five hundred. Tesla. Tesla. <laughs> Like Tesla has always been a weird outlier. Tesla is not in the S&P 500 because it hasn't ever had four consecutive quarters of profit. And so that means it's not eligible for the S&P 500. And so that makes the holders of Tesla much more diverse than the holders of virtually any other stock. Oh, there we go. I like that explanation. So (laughs) it's more diverse and there was no reason. (laughs) Wait, but... Maybe at first there was no reason when it first started going up, but then as our Google search results show us, people went nuts and yes. probably drove yeah, and that, up and more. That is, and that's and part of the reason because people are like, Tesla's so cool. Elon Musk is like Iron Man. Oh, my God. Like there is some some bit of that driving it up. And, and, yeah, and, there's there's all, a, yeah. and any bubble has that type of element. There, to there's, it. Yeah. A, there's a kind of FOMO thing going on. But there's also what happens, and this is this bizarre phenomenon that you get in sort of late capitalism is that people think about, think that the stock is a good investment precisely because it's going up and, and they see the stock going up and they're like, Oh yeah, 
this is the market ratifying the thesis that everyone's going to be buying electric vehicles, that Tesla has an insurmountable lead in the EV market, that it has this gigafactory in Shanghai, which means it's going to have an insurmountable lead in China, which is going to be the biggest car market in the world. There's this new news coming out from Panasonic saying that the batteries it's making are now a profit center. And all of these different data points coming together. And then some random entity called Arc Research putting a price target of $7,000 a share on. By 2025. And and all of this kind of stuff. And people are like, yeah, this is going to, this is going to like be the, the new big thing. And so Tesla at that point just becomes this dream. It's almost like the financial equivalent of a lottery ticket. Yes. And you go in there and you're like, I'm going to buy the dream. I, I just, I don't know. I, I don't sounds so believe right that me. there are that many... That's the, that's all the articles. The but, Times wrote no, that story. But, the Journal but wrote then that story. Also, but then combine that with, let's say that you are, you own Tesla stock, right? Let's say that you're not buying Tesla stock, but you're just someone who happens to own it. And it goes from, you know, $200, share, $200 to $300 to $400, 5 dollars 9 you know. And then some some of these retail investors typing, should I buy Tesla stock into Google, come along to you and like, can I buy your Tesla stock? And you're like, fuck no. Like, this is fucking awesome. I'm loving this rocket ship. Even, even if it falls another 50%, I'm still up like a gazillion dollars. Why would I want to sell? So what happens is it becomes harder and harder to find buyers because holders are like, why, why on earth would I want to sell? And there are no robots in this. There are, but, no, there are no hedgies and there are no HFT I, uh, well, guys but there, programming but also, against. So, so, yeah, well, but also yes. there's huge volume. So yeah, exactly. I'm contradicting myself yeah, here because there is the volume. volume. is way too high. For, but, yeah, of course those yeah. are going to be involved. But I think you also have to be a little careful because there's a tendency when anything weird happens in the market now for everyone to be like, it's the robots. But the thing is like... Th- the people who are making these, these are not like simplistic things that are just like, oh, this tells me to keep buying, so I will keep buying. Like they're very complicated. So it's it's actually somewhat unlikely that you're going to get that type of movement just from high frequency traders, right? Like, or, or from like, I, I don't know. I think like, high frequency traders are responsible for lots of weird moves, day to day moves. So from- not that type of move. So it's true. Like you can see high frequency trading moves, like these little mini flash crashes. Um, which happen in almost every major stock in pretty much every yeah. single day. And they last... Not over... Yeah, not they, over this no, but, time period. Yeah, they, they last for maybe a but couple of are, seconds, right. not for days. But you know there are robots responding to other robots, yes. too. But I'm That's saying, what causes I'm so saying much of those, the cascade. Those kind yeah. of cascades, you right. can see them last... You can see them every day, and you can, and they last for seconds. They don't last right. for and, days. And quant traders are... It's not as simplistic as I think it's sometimes portrayed, as though, like, oh, well, you know, it, one thing happens, and then it's just cascading effect. Like, no... Like these are these are very sophisticated. I have no doubt the algorithms, algorithms are sophisticated. I think the outcomes aren't always sophisticated. That's the difference. I think they're they're overly complicated at the outset, but the outcomes, what it ends up executing, doesn't always look like what you thought it was going to look like. Which explains which explains the complexity, but at the same time, it doesn't suggest that the outcome is equally complex as what you're intending. But in any do. case, my my big takeaway from all of this is that. Everyone is being, including us, is being distracted by Tesla stock as this like weird animal which behaves in very odd and peculiar ways that no one can really understand. I mean, and it is a distraction to us. It is a distraction to Tesla. It is not actually helpful for Tesla as a company. And this only serves to ratify Elon Musk's desire in 2018 to just take take the fucking company public private rather take take the fucking company private 
at $420 a share, which was a perfectly good price. And then if he'd done that, like, it looks possibly maybe as though that might, in hindsight, have been a reasonable It would have been price. a bargain. Yeah. And, uh, and, well, and you don't know what would have been a bargain. But. And then he wouldn't have had all of this bullshit wouldn't be happening and he could just concentrate on making curves. Yeah, but now he's set to get some, like, insane payday if the stock price holds, right? If, so if, if, if it like, maintains like a hundred billion valuation over six, six at least six months yeah. and you can't fall below a certain amount, yeah. he right. gets... He gets like half a billion dollars. But but compared to how much he just like this guy's net worth is up twenty billion dollars this year alone. So it's like it's a lot of money, but it's less uh, but you know who else made a huge fortune this week? Jeff. Larry Ellison. Larry Ellison owns three million Tesla shares. So that you know. And the Saudis? How are they doing? No, they got out right before. Ah. Yeah, that, oh, really? Yes, Whoa, yes. That's a good story. That was a bad trade on their part. <laughs> oh, see, good things do happen. So clearly they didn't know anything. But in any case, um, <laughs> Emily, as, is, as the closest thing we have in this room to Google, I'm going to ask you, should I buy Tesla stock? I mean, it's come down now, right, from, from the highs? No. Maybe it could bounce back up? No, don't do it. Unless you don't care about losing money, I think. Don't we always say don't don't gamble on individual stocks? It is it is the new Bitcoin. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I think it is probably. It is uh, I mean, well, it has yeah. somewhat more kind of a reality to its valuation than Bitcoin. There's something there. They in fact do actually produce cars. There is something but, really seductive about the argument that like it has the lead in electric oh, look, vehicles that, and like once the world finally stops relying on gas and switches over, it's gonna have the lead and it's just gonna like that is very yeah, like, I think Elon there's value in this company. Yeah. Like right. I think I don't think there's this much value in this company but, at this stage. But you know, look, we've seen this with a lot of growth companies that have done very, very well over the past ten years. That you know, when you're buying a company like this, you are not buying it obviously based on earnings. You're buying it based on growth. You're buying it based on expected earnings. You're like and you can't exactly put it a great price on the future where you're just like it, it seems like it's at this moment where as you said either it itself will become very large or at some point it'll get acquired so what one of the mechanisms here which i think the tesla bulls love to glom onto and certainly elon musk has been banging this drum a lot is this idea that it's the first car company with like internet scale network effects that he has a gazillion hours of data already from cars that have been driving around and no other auto manufacturer has anywhere near that much data. And because he has that much data, his cars become better and become closer to self-driving more quickly because it's a very data heavy kind of problem to solve. And so people wind up buying the Tesla cars because Tesla has better data. And the more people who buy Tesla cars, the better Tesla's data becomes. And it becomes this insurmountable lead and no one can compete. You know, I think that's probably false. And I think that within a few years, there will be other EV manufacturers competing with Tesla. But it's certainly true right now that in terms of network effects, not only in data, but also in terms of charging stations, Tesla has this huge lead. And it does make a lot of rational sense for someone buying an EV to buy a Tesla just because of those network effects. Yeah. And and I've also heard people say that when you're figuring out how you're valuing this thing, that you're not, you're looking at it, not just like a normal car company, but you're almost looking at it like something like an Apple where you have hardware in theory you have software and you have services like you you have a, it's a combined thing so you're going it's going to trade at a higher multiple right basically. but I'm, right. I'm talking about buying cars rather than the stock here yeah. I'm saying that people buy well, the I wouldn't want to talk about the actual cars well I mean like <laughs> Elon Musk has been making this uh, 
case for a while that the car is an investment. Like at some point, the data will become so rich that you're going to be able to rent your car out as a self-driving vehicle. Yeah, and that actually is very important. That is actually a big part of this idea behind this valuation is this kind of like robo-taxi idea and and these ideas that, that, yes, exactly, you can actually make money when you're sitting at work because your your car is self driving car is going to be driving. I think self driving is ridic- is snake oil. That that's not real. That's not going to happen. Not for decades and decades. It might happen in in like highly artificial parts of you know the bit of Toronto that Google is building or something like that. Mm. Or if there's like a, a special lane out of the airport that takes you a mile outside, like sure, fine, you can. But that's basically mass transit, right? right. That's just a, a rail system without rails. So. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, okay, so Ed, you are the media, media correspondent. Well, I'm now Times. going to rebrand myself as the media, media reporter at the New York Times, or is it the media, media, media reporter? <laughs> uh, because there's social media and there's, is there other media? I think social media is. Sort but of I feel like we've now, we can now split media into media, media and social media. <laughs> very well. So the media media story is getting interesting. The New York Times, your very employer, just came out with some pretty amazing subscription numbers. Oh, yeah. I was surprised myself, actually. I mean, I've been tracking the company for a while, but uh, I think we are now at uh, 5.2 million subscribers altogether. That includes print. But if you're looking at just the digital, it's 4.3 and change, which, again, I'm surprised by. And it there was certainly the the Trump bump in 2016 that if you look at a chart, there's this nice swoop up uh, and then it levels a little bit, but then it continues to go up. So, you know, you could argue that that is still Trump because he's still in office. But uh, even after things like the Mueller report, when that was a, a big disappointment for the left, like the subscriptions still kept going up. You know, there was this sense that, oh, as soon as this sort of whole thing starts to fizzle one way or the other, no one will be interested. But and, that's not true. And in a show of like interesting show of confidence here. The New York Times, for the first time, I think ever, has decided to increase the price of the of digital, the digital, of the only digital sub. subscription. Right. Like it's a bit like Netflix just did that. What last year for the first time, the, the, the first big digital price hike. Now the New York Times is doing it. They're moving it up from fifteen to seventeen dollars a month. Right. Which so these all these prices are interesting, right? Netflix is about fifteen, sixteen, or thirteen for for a, a basic subscription or the standard subscription. New York Times is about fifteen, is going up to seventeen. They're all similarly priced, right? Hulu, how much, how much Spotify. Is, how much all, is Spotify? Spotify is what is it? Ten? I think it's, it's yeah. ten. Yeah, Spotify is ten. Hulu's a bit less. Hulu's like six, but you have to have six ads. with ads or twelve without. Um, you Disney know, plus is six. 
Disney Plus is six. Granted, I would say there's some differences between like Disney Plus and the New York Times. Yes. But 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 I think the price point forces consumers to immediately compare them in a lot of ways. Right, exactly. And and it's fascinating to me that of all of those, the New York Times was basically at the top of the list. It was the most expensive, and now it's becoming even more expensive. Well, but compared to like the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. It was less expensive. It was less expensive, but I guess that's the other sort of value proposition, right? Which is, you know, the FT and the Wall Street Journal, which I think are great papers. But, like speak to, but it's professional, professional, or it's a niche, or it's a it's it's a more specified market as opposed to potentially everyone. Now they would disagree with that, right? I'm sure the journal, especially, would disagree with that. No, we are meant for all educated readers everywhere. You're interested in living in the world, and we live in a capitalist society. You want to read the journal. I think that's a fair pitch. But if you look at the the array of content. I think part of what helps the Times, frankly, is all the non-political coverage as well as the political coverage. Right. right? I mean, I think yeah. The the big story that's really interesting is that the time the New York Times, a newspaper, has managed to I think we can say confidently now transform itself from old media newspaper into a subscriber based media to company. a digital media a digital or a new subscri- media or company going from right? advertiser yeah. driven because the advertiser advertising revenue keeps falling 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 to subscription based revenue and, and this is they and have this different the... products now it's not just you could you could subscribe to the new york times online you can also subscribe to new york times cooking the, the cooking app the crossword app right. well, and the crossword app they're both doing and well. they're separate apps too interestingly enough yeah. like and i was told just anecdote like the cooking app a lot of the subscribers are not New York Times readers. Right. A lot of them are in the Midwest. Um, right. and People in the Midwest do read the New York Times. <laughs> but, 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 but relative yeah. to it, the, what not, they've... It's not a subset. The, the right. cooking and crossword it's really subscribers are not did. entirely a subset. So that was an and, interesting... And, meanwhile, yeah. and the other thing which was fascinating to me was that digital ad revenue went down. So that yeah. is still a head-scratcher. I'm surprised by that, right? Because it's a it's a growing, qualified audience, right? And you are not doing as well in the advertising against it as you did the previous year. So you have more readers this year than last year, but you're selling fewer ads. Mm-hmm. That, I think, is surprising. I don't know. I wonder if what what's going on there. I haven't really gotten a good explanation for why that's happening. Though, more broadly, across digital media, display advertising has started to flatten Tanked. anyway. Yeah. And I think I think more broadly, the, the big trend in digital advertising, which we've talked about many times on this show with and without Ed Lee, is that it is all just getting sucked into the gaping maw of Google and Facebook, the, <laughs> the duopoly, and no one else can get a foot in. Which is why subscriber revenue is that much more important, whether the New York Times or Netflix or almost anything else at this point, uh, if you're not Google or Facebook. The other thing about the New York Times, we're talking about media, old versus new, print versus digital. They did surpass uh, a pretty important milestone that they had set for themselves, 800 million digital revenue, which they just passed this the end of the end of last year, a year ahead of their intended target. Despite the fact that digital ad revenue went down, they were making so much money in from digital the, subscription revenue that they hit that. And, and so, they make uh, they made a lot of money from um they make a lot of money from the daily podcast. That's the one area area where their sponsorship against that right, which is, is yeah. robust, and um they're making money from from Hulu from. It's it's Hulu, right? So yeah, yeah, I think that's tiny. I think yeah, that was that's a one-time little revenue. That's yeah, a relatively that's, yeah. That's a TV small. show, the weekly show that mm-hmm. that airs both on FX and on Hulu, and they're both supplying the Times with money to, to fund it. So that certainly helps the top line, but mm-hmm. it's 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 very small. There's also Wirecutter, which is the review site, and there's affiliate revenue against that, which certainly helps. Um, I mean, it was a very photogenic 800 million that it hit. 800.8 million was the, the precise number. Um, the the more important context around that though is the 
you know, the conceit around having a big enough digital business so that you don't need to rely on print. So were print to just disappear tomorrow, which it won't, but let's say it just happened, all of a sudden you still have an $800 million business, right? That's growing. Right. So I think that was the the sort of the mental hurdle to get past that can we survive as a as a online-only business? Yes, most likely again. And I think that's really interesting because I was reading a piece this morning in, I think it was Business Week, about Warren Buffett getting out of the newspaper business. And the piece- Yeah, had, I never quite understood why he was in it. To begin <laughs> with. I mean, according to the, he loved newspapers. He used to deliver them, I don't know, whatever. And he's supposed to be so <laughs> brilliant, right? And there are all these like investors getting into uh, the newspaper business and sort of like managing its decline. And these guys are just, they're not, they're well, not should, smart about, they could have, re, the Times reinvented it. No, yeah, but, no, but the, time, yeah, the Times yeah, is yeah, a times, special yeah, thing. No, yeah, yeah, no. We are all going to jump on you there. Sorry about that. There no. is only one New York Times. The, the, Warren Buffett's newspapers are all local newspapers. No local newspaper can do what the New York Times did. You can't get a local newspaper with 5 million digital subscribers, obviously. obviously. Especially not charging, when you're charging $17 a month, which is... In order to be able to find 5 million people paying $17 a month, and as we've said, like that is not a mass market price, that is a premium price, it you is. need to be targeting. And, you but, know, I, one, one person who used to sell New York Times subscriptions like explained this to me. Basically, the top 50% of college graduates, mm-hmm. that's who you're going after. And most Americans... Aren't college I'm not saying everyone should have done what the Times did to reinvent themselves. I'm saying the Times had people running it that cared about the Times, and they did different stuff. It, not everything they did was successful to reinvent themselves. Meanwhile, in the rest of America, newspapers... They just didn't have the the people behind it to reinvent them. Right, and but even if you'd have yeah, that, how the that times is, did and it. the reason and the reason that why maybe that, is, that could have happened. No, but the reason why that's places. not true, and there's a very good reason why that's not true, mm-hmm. is that if you look at across America, there are thousands of newspapers across America, mm-hmm. the vast majority of which are local newspapers. Only one newspaper has been able to do what the New York Times has done, and that's the New York Times. And the New York Times is completely sweet generous and you would think if what you were saying was true that like oh you just need to try a few different things and maybe one <laughs> of them will work if what that if that was true mm-hmm. then you would think that statistically speaking at least maybe eight or nine of these little local places mm-hmm. would have been able to have some success and you can't point to I'm any saying if also because was as smart as everyone said he could have taken his wealth and his alleged strategical brilliance and he had a bunch of newspapers he but, could have well, figured out really how to what do he does something. but he doesn't do that Warren Buffett is not someone who yeah, creates value in companies he's the he's his investment thesis is I'm going to find value where other investors have not seen it uh-huh. and then own that versus I'm going he's not a he's a passive he's, he's not well, a PE guy investor. he doesn't That's like sort fair. of turn yeah and, and, and to be fair too his, his whole thing is often like i'm going to find something that's an excellent brand that has a moat around it mm-hmm. whereas that is decidedly not the case with a lot of these newspapers and also i think it's important to like the success of the new york times is also going to eat into all of those it used to be that you had your local newspaper mm-hmm. and that's what you're reading. now you can get the new york times and, so. and i think i think that's the internet has sort of ex- broken that barrier down where i mean Sad to say, like, so for every subscriber, new subscriber the New York Times gets is potentially one fewer that the L.A. Times or the Chicago Tribune get. Right. So we then the New York Times has sets itself up really as a national paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
and in, in a very real way, in a very immediate way. And so it's great for the times, but overall, like it kind of shrinks the news pie, uh, unfortunately. And I think that's the bigger conundrum beyond just, you know, I think you're right, Felix. I think the New York Times is the only one that's really doing it that can have this brand, but you have these others trying to vie. And I think it's. No, I think there's, there's a clear second tier, which is the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. Uh, I think the Post would probably argue with you and say, hey, actually, no, we are first here. And there are people who like are deciding between the Post and the Times. You know, I think maybe the Journal is one of those who are like, you know what? I get the Journal plus something else. Right. Whereas the Post is trying to be a first tier, uh, mm-hmm. your first read, sa- same as the L.A. Times. I think the Chicago Tribune, like they're in a completely different situation. With but all of all in, of the but- in order to all, all of these properties have national ambitions. Yes, that is you have to you, you have can't to have not have. Ambitions. And that's the thing. Maybe. You can't be a local paper anymore. Maybe that whole concept doesn't exist. It's not not viable. as a profit model. I mean, I think yeah. the only way you could have local papers is if it was something that was like publicly funded as a public a service. Right. Yeah, yeah. Which that is something that you know, like Lorene Jobs, who she's thinking about that, working on it, and trying to figure out ways that you can create a model around. Yeah, local everyone news. is everyone is trying to make local news work. Like apparently, Patch still exists and is maybe that's crazy to me. That is, is maybe yeah. like making money somewhere. There's there's an interesting model going on in Berkeley side. They just opened a new publication covering Oakland, and there are interesting local news things, and they're often based on some kind of nonprofit model. But the idea that you could have a public company with what's the market cap of the New York Times it's now? Like five billion plus, well like that. over that now. I think maybe it's getting closer to six. Yeah. Um, but I, like, I feel yeah. like a few years ago it wasn't a sure. Like we're all looking at the Times now. Oh yeah, no, oh, this no, is, no, no one's saying this sure was inevitable. Thing. I think no they, one is saying that this was inevitable. I just think that the in, the inventiveness and uh, the creativity they put into reinventing their business is not something seen at other in other places and other news outlets like the Washington Post maybe you can make that argument now but more it's just like they figured out the internet a little bit I right. think and no, have but they're, some they're... money but they haven't approached reinventing news media the way the times has which I think is interesting and I I don't think that other papers... So what do you think, think that what do you think <laughs> that the really inventive thing was that the times did in terms of reinventing news media I think the way they uh, I think the daily was inventive they weren't the first to do a daily news podcast but they right. kind of I mean everyone listens to that to that show because they did it really well and no one else had sort of done it before everyone has copied them since I think the cooking app is really smart I think people had tried to do just subscriptions before and it hadn't worked I think they approached everything with a level of excellence that I'd I haven't seen in other places. And I think they are almost more becoming like a like a lifestyle brand. Like it's not just news. Like the, the, the Washington Post is still fundamentally news. And I think the Times has like yeah, a lot of what of they it. do is not really, let's be honest, like hard news. I mean, it's it's stuff that's fun and it's 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 stuff that you used to more get in magazines like in and, and they are using video and audio in really interesting ways but they it is it is just such a different animal to compare it to almost any other newspaper doesn't make a lot of sense so it's, right. it's i think i, I agree with fine. what everyone's saying here i think it's a hard, it's success is a hard thing to explain frankly uh, beyond sort of the excellence argument i mean the journal was uh, was charging people online from the first day of being on the internet so it's not like the, it the times was just sort of following in the footsteps of what other companies had been doing it's just the specific blend of things that it had maybe mm-hmm. and at the specific time that it did it that it allowed it to sort of succeed but again it's hard to explain I don't, and, and I we really... yeah we should be happy that the new york times is succeeding but i think it's a 
stretch to then say, well, if you didn't manage to succeed like the New York Times did, then no, you must I'm have done something wrong. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying um, they tried really hard, and I don't know. I think a bunch of people have tried hard. And then, you know, like, and it makes yeah. me sad to see these hedge funds coming in and buying up these newspapers Definitely. and just managing their decline and not and not even trying. Like, yeah, and those, just, yeah. you those know what I mean? They're just still, sucking value out of newspapers. Well, those papers still generate a lot of cash flow. So yeah. I think that's what they're in yeah. it for, unfortunately. By the way, six point two billion. Six point two billion. That, is, that billion. is the market, the current market cap of the New York Times. Last Carlos trading Slim about is thirty-seven. Making, is, is, is he's making nice money. money, but people should know. I mean, it is a publicly traded company, and you can buy the shares and, and make money off of that. But is firmly controlled by the Ox Salzberger family. Um, there's a, a second class of shares that you that aren't openly traded that the family owns, and. Those this is shares, standard for media companies. Right. Though. It's fairly standard for media companies. And, you know, it's to protect the journalism. It's not just about profit. Um, and But anyway, the family controls two-thirds of the board. So Carlos Slim could buy up every single openly traded share and still only control a third of the board. Right. We don't need to worry about Carlos Slim controlling the New York Times. Or anyone, for that matter, outside of the family, for now. But I look forward to the day that the New York Times stock becomes like the new gambling vehicle. like <laughs> The new Tesla. Tesla. <laughs> but let's talk about the social media, the other side of the media coin, which is where the real money... So the real money media. <laughs> so Maybe real that's what we media. should call that, real so money what, media. what is the New York Times uh, annual revenue on, or, or let's just say annual ad revenue, where are we at now? Well, I think the digital is something around 260 and then another print about another 260 or 300, something like so that. So less, half a billion, yeah. less than half a billion yeah. dollars. Or half a billion-ish dollars yeah. um, for ad revenue. Now, um, compare that to ad revenue at YouTube, which is... 15.1 billion. Compare that to ad revenue at Instagram, which is... 20 billion. <laughs> and these are subsidiaries of... Google the real Facebook money business, right? Facebook Blue and Google Search. You know, these are the, the actual, the daddy businesses. <laughs> uh, YouTube and Instagram are just sort of these one-time errant hobbies that turned into massive, massive, massive things. I think, however, YouTube is not a real business. I suspected for years that it loses money, and I think even seeing its current financials, I still think it loses well, that, money. Well, that's the thing. They, didn't, they, they didn't reveal whether it was right. profitable. Because this is the difference between, obviously, YouTube and Instagram, that right. YouTube, most of its revenue is going to the content producers, right. which is not the case with Instagram. Well, is it most? I already say most a lot. It I think it is, it is most. most. So uh, 55 cents out of every dollar goes to the actual creators, right? So the whole conceit of YouTube, right, the original thesis around YouTube is you don't need television anymore. You don't need to pay for programming. People create their own entertainment. And guess what? They do. 500 hours of, of videos uploaded to YouTube every minute. That's insane. So there's a whole wealth of expression out there that just sort of lives on this on this repository called YouTube. And so, you know, you play it, you let you download it. There's advertising against it. Most of that then goes to the people creating the videos. YouTube doesn't create anything. Right. Or most most of what's on there is not created by YouTube. So 55 cents out of every dollar goes to the actual creators. They take 45 cents. So they their real revenue is more like $7 billion, let's say, right? So I looked at it thinking like, all right, $7 billion, how much does it cost to run? The fact that they didn't reveal that, I think is very telling. Unfortunately, we don't really have a good comparison. The best comparison, I think, is Netflix. They're a similar sized business in terms of they send a lot of video out over the internet. Video on the internet is actually very expensive. You know, we tend to think of it being sort of, oh, it's just easy. It's, it's relatively free and, and data is cheap. Um, but 
for as large an operation as it is, the bandwidth that it sucks up, the staffing, everything, cloud computing, servers, et cetera. So the closest comparison being Netflix. If you take out all the content costs, what they spend on content, it's something like seven or eight billion that Netflix spends every year just to maintain its business, right? So if it's a, if there's in any way a mirror of the costs at YouTube, I think YouTube loses money every year. But it is this time suck for people with Google accounts and it just keeps people inside the Google ecosystem. I mean, put, put it this way. Google paid what, like $400 million for YouTube, something like that? It was like one, one, a billion dollars. I oh, think, a billion right? dollars? Yeah, something like that. I mean, that, that has to be up there with Instagram as one of the great acquisitions. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a, a, a fundamental part of the internet. We right. should just say um, the reason we're talking about YouTube's financials is because for the first time ever, Google actually said what they were because now that the the boys are gone. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and, and also just because we have similar new information from Instagram. No mm-hmm. one knew how much money Instagram was making. Well, that was the timing of that was curious, right? Because, yes. you know, you... Google releases YouTube financials, right? It was a total right? flex by Facebook. And then all of a sudden it's like, huh, I think, you know, if you're Instagram, you're like, ah, but my business is bigger. I want this known out there in one form or another. Uh, I think it was Bloomberg News that reported, and they, I think they have great reporters. And I think they did a pretty good job. But I do think the timing is uh, is very interesting. It's so, telling. But so it, Instagram does not share its $20 billion with its content creators. They keep most of it. There's still some portion of Instagram that is similar to YouTube where they have creators and they pass along a bulk of the ad revenue against those creators to to those people. But for the most part, Instagram, the advertising in that works very much like Facebook Blue, where it's just, it's the in-between spaces where these ads come up. Instagram and then, ads are addictive. Right. Am I right? I, I cannot stop clicking. I will I know, click on the Instagram so ads. My, it is the only, very well targeted. It is the only ad that anyone, it's <laughs> the only ad unit online that anyone ever yes, clicks on. Yeah. 100% true. Um, <laughs> Shopify is a multi-billion dollar business, basically on the, on the, back of Instagram ads alone, as far as I can make out. It is probably the most well-designed and compelling ad unit that the entire ad industry or media industry has designed in decades. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating to me is that when Facebook bought Instagram, everyone was like, do you think they're ever going to be able to sell ads Mm -hmm. against this? And it turns out that it's so much more powerful than YouTube ads, so much more powerful than than like um, standard online banner ads, so much more powerful than anything you see in your Facebook feed. It is just insane how how especially luxury brands who don't advertise anywhere else online are flocking to Instagram. Mm-hmm. Because it's the beautiful platform. Right. It's mm-hmm. the thing that comes closest to what magazines once mm-hmm. were, right. right, in that way. Yeah. And I think a lot of luxury advertisers were lamenting just how the internet was for them. And then all of a sudden, Instagram comes along and it's sort of the beautiful life platform, basically. And so it was tailor-made for luxury brands and, you know, fancy car commercials, that kind of a thing. So yeah, I think in that way, it was sort of lightning in a bottle. Is it going to eclipse Facebook? Because it's a quarter of Facebook's revenue right now, I believe. So, I mean, one day, could we see a flip given how powerful? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I think they're also starting to do a much better job about figuring out e-commerce, which I think is obviously something Facebook in general wants to do on many platforms. But I think it makes far more sense on Instagram. And and they do seem to have a little bit of a head start. I know that is something that YouTube is also looking at. But I think YouTube has a much longer way to go. So I think if you were going to value, if you were going to value YouTube versus Instagram, I think no question, Instagram has a much more like... If I I was a 
you know, high end clothing company, say, and Instagram came to me and said, we want to do something with e-commerce with you. I would be I would take that meeting in a second. If YouTube came to me and said, I want to do something with e-commerce with you, I I would be like, who go away. No. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't want to be next to beheading videos. Right. Or, right. You know, yeah. And white nationalists. Yeah. <laughs> um there is a reason. So this whole YouTube question, which like I said, for years I suspected it had been losing money. And I would anytime I come across a Google source, I'd bug them, hey, do you think YouTube like what I I think it loses money and they sort of like turn their heads and not kind of say anything. <laughs> and eventually, like, you know, enough people sort of hinted that yeah it may not be profitable but there's a good reason why it exists i'm like what's the reason they're like the data right we talked about data earlier in terms of tesla having this network so much of youtube viewing feeds into the algorithms and the and the data processing against advertising against search uh and their display ad network and so it's it gives them this extra edge that they otherwise wouldn't have so the so the kind of videos i watch on youtube help to determine the ads that i get served on search and back the other way too right so it is part of a larger ecosystem that it's hard to divorce in a lot of ways if you really want to value so we, they but, dominate but this, search. Is, this explains yeah. maps i mean maps yes. is the most astonishing product and as far as I can make out, revenue from maps is basically zero. I mean, it might be tiny, 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 but it's a really important part of the Google in, in, in ecosystem because of the data that they know about me because of right. what I give them from using Google Maps. That then feeds into all manner of other revenue streams they can get somewhere else. Yeah, and also thinking about kind of data moving forward, I mean, this is slightly anecdotal, but I mean, I think from like the zero to four set, YouTube has a lock on them. Like and in, in a way that also does, I have seen personally sell products. <laughs> like I mean, that's it, astounding to me, right? But I, you're right; you're absolutely right. And it's just at every stage of of your life, there is something on there for you that it's hard to. My daughter's 15, and she does, you know, she's got homework on occasion, and there's something. There's a YouTube video that explains something in in some form or another. Everything from the math equations, quadratics, to you know what happened to Charlemagne and what, like, it's just, it's just, there's enough on there that there's huge utility. No, I mean, right? like my three-year-old nephew, all of the Christmas presents he wanted, he saw YouTube videos of kids <laughs> playing with those Christmas presents. Or those Whereas toys. all of the Christmas presents that my wife wants, she gets from Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's have a numbers round. Okay. What's your number, Emily? My number is 15. 15% because that is the broker fee I spent <laughs> on my first apartment in New York City, which no, the best I went back news. and I think it was about like $1,200 back then because my first apartment was pretty cheap, real, all, all in. But it was really hard to come up with that $1,200 back then. That's a lot of money. On top Woo! of the first Sorry. month's rent, on and top, the top of the last month's rent, uh, on top of the security yeah, it deposit. it was really tough. Where are you meant to find all of that how, money? Yeah, how does anyone move to New York anymore? I don't know it's how I did it, actually, looking back. But the good news is no more broker's fees in New York City. This Yay. sort of sn- snuck it on all of us. That, that is amazing that they snuck it into the bill oh. and that basically this trade group just like were caught unawares, <laughs> right? It's amazing to me. <laughs> and then that. and then they came out with all of these like squeals of pain saying, but this is going to really hurt the re- rental brokers nope. industry. And everyone's like, <laughs> yeah, that's the point. That is the best <laughs> news. No one is crying for that. No one right. is nope. crying. And, and some people started to say, oh, but rent might go up. And it's like, First of all, rent always goes up in New York City. And second <laughs> right. of all, yeah, just the a... difference between trying to gather up that that broker fee versus just a little bit extra every month. But also Plus, but probably... also the broker the... that what they're saying is that the broker's fee is going to be reflected in the rent and that is 
possibly true. But what they're not saying is that the broker fee is going to come down substantially because when the landlords yes. weren't paying it, mm-hmm. yeah, they, they didn't, didn't care. care. Right. Yeah. Now that they're yep. paying it, they're going yes. to be price sensitive. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> um, Anna, what's your number? My number is four pounds and 50 pence. So this is maybe what the cost of the sandwich is that got the city <gasps> trader fired. It was a sandwich? I've, I've heard it was a Wait, sandwich. What? Now, it may not, as I've said, I... I what? Uh, this could be wrong. So there was this Citigroup trader in London who apparently stole possibly a sandwich from a canteen, like just like the cafeteria. Once. Uh, one once sandwich. And got fired. What? <laughs> or no, I shouldn't say. I think he's suspended. I'm not sure if he's actually fired. No, I think he got fired. I think fully fired. Yeah, because so, they, they fired him before the bonuses were payable. That's right. So from the company canteen? Yeah. The company. And he was making mil- Mill- literally millions. <laughs> yeah. Or at least a million. Why did he steal a sandwich? No one knows. Millions? No one knows. Who's in a rush? <laughs> no, I think, I mean, I think there, isn't it just the thrill, right? Like, ultimately, these guys, they just, they're in it for the it's thrill. It's like when Kendall right? stole it's from like the newsstand. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. It's just like Kendall stealing from the newsstand. Winona Ryder. Yeah. I remember one time in, in Sun Valley, like, you know, it's this is the big sort of mogul retreat, and it was in the coffee shop. Oh, and chest you know, And, I'm, you know, billionaires are going through there, right? And I saw one of the billionaires just come in, take a paper, and walk out, <gasps> and not, not pay for it. <laughs> Name names, Edley. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to think about that. Um, what's your number? <laughs> so I've got a tricky number. It's a little bit of a cheat. One million. That's my number. Okay. That is the number of subscribers that the New York Times netted last year. That's the that's the delta. That is the delta. Okay. One million is also the number of subscribers that Disney generated in two weeks in January. <laughs> right? <laughs> One million is also the number of subscribers Netflix netted over 10 days. Oh, my God. Wow. So that's a way to think about what we've been talking about earlier. Yep. Yeah. My number is 80 billion because <laughs> I love big numbers. This is I love this number so much. 80 billion um, is the number of sea urchins <laughs> that are <laughs> ravaging the Norwegian kelp forests. There's a bunch of kelp in Norway, and thanks to global warming and various other things. It's not just Norway. It's also in California. It's also in Australia. Basically, around the world, everywhere you find kelp, there's this horrible invasion of sea urchins. And there are 80 billion sea urchins in um, Norway. And it's super harmful for the life in the oceans because these kelp forests support enormous numbers of fish and other things. And the urchins just come along and eat them all and destroy them. Which means that... There is a huge opportunity here. New food supply? For us all to go completely batshit bonkers eating uni. Yes, I was about to say. Like when you said, hmm. And I'm like, and and so people are setting up uni farms in like Norway and all over the world to try and take these sea urchins and turn them into like something delicious and profitable and good (laughs) rather than just evil. And then once you start farming the urchins, that allows the kelp forests to grow back. So uni is the best thing you can eat and we should all be eating more of it. Let's have them with breakfast. I I love it with scrambled eggs. I mean, it does taste good with scrambled eggs. Yeah, yeah. Can you eat that? I'm, I'm seeing a lot of blank stares on the other side. <laughs> so, so sea urchins are a bit like oysters in it's that true. they don't you could probably have a, make an argument. They don't but... have a nervous system. So, if you're the kind of vegetarian <laughs> who doesn't eat things with an, I mean, they're living things, but then carrots are living things, right? It's all living. So, the right. question is, where do you draw, draw the, the line? line? Yeah. Okay, maybe, maybe I'd eat some uni. 
fun. We should have an for, for just for the kelp. I'll do it for the kelp <laughs> <laughs> to save the kelp. Yes, save the kelp. Um, okay. Wow. On which note, I think we are going to wrap up Slate Money this week. Thank you, Ed Lee, for coming in. It was amazing to have you. Always a pleasure being here. Um, thank you, Jasmine and Molly, for producing. Thank you all for listening. Do stay tuned for the Slate Plus about Spotify and keep the emails coming, please. Slate Money at Slate.com. We will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.